Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Conversations podcast channel. For today, we are going to talk about how retirees or soon-to-be retirees feel about the current macro and market environment, both quite fluid and, of course, ever-evolving. So we'll dive into how conditions are influencing saving as well as spending patterns. And we'll also spend some time on planning by raising the question, how much does one need to have saved in order to retire comfortably? as well as some strategies to help determine that. So joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Total Wealth Strategist for the Americas, Ainsley Carbone. And then joining us as well from our partners at Janice Henderson Investors, glad to welcome back Matt Sommer, the head of the specialist consulting group at the firm. So with that, Ainsley, Matt, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for dropping by, spending some time with our listeners as well as our clients looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So to get started, maybe we can go back in time a bit, Matt. 2022, you think about it, it was a challenging year for the markets and for retirees as well as those approaching retirement. Now, although equities have recovered somewhat on a year-to-date basis here in 2023. Of course, concerns surrounding the economy and higher rates, they do remain on investors' minds. So, Matt, in what ways have retirees adjusted their spending and saving habits or patterns accordingly in the past year? This in consideration of how market as well as macro conditions, how they both have evolved. Last October, we conducted a survey of approximately 2,000 investors ages 50 and older to learn just that. How are people coping with the markets and inflation? And the first thing that we learned, we already knew. People had concerns about the economy. About 79% of people were somewhat or very concerned about the market. Slightly more, about 86% were somewhat or very concerned about inflation. The next thing we did is we looked to see whether or not those concerns manifested themselves into either positive or negative behaviors. And I have some really good news to share today. Uh, The first thing that we learned is that approximately 40% of households either already reduced their household spending or plan to reduce their household spending as a result of what was going on with the economy. Now, the key takeaway there is that it was households where both spouses made decisions collaboratively as compared to households where financial decisions are delegated to one spouse or the other where this uh, realization was made. And I think this really reinforces the notion that when both partners or spouses are involved in the financial planning process, better outcomes are often achieved. Uh, the second thing that we learned, and, and again, some really good news, is despite uh, the concerns about the markets and inflation, only 14% of those surveyed actually sold any of their stocks and bonds as a result of what was happening in the economy. So put another way, 86% uh, was staying the course. And at least through uh, the early part of 2023, it looks as if they're uh, being rewarded as such. The key takeaway there, however, is that of the 14%, they were more likely to be male investors versus female investors. And a lot of work has been done about gender differences when it comes to investing. And what research has tended to find 
is that female investors, on average, tend to be underconfident, which means they know a lot more than they think they do. And as a result, sometimes they invest a little bit more conservatively than their age and circumstances might dictate. But males, on the other hand, tend to be overconfident, which means they don't know as much as they think they do. And as a result, they tend to be a little bit more impatient, tend to market time, sometimes become susceptible to excessive trading. And we think we had seen that play out based upon the results back in October of 2022. Well, Matt, some very interesting takeaways as you walked us through the findings there, especially when you think about how females and males respectively approach investing. So thinking about how retirees generate income in order to fortify savings or maybe support lifestyle, where are retirees going today in order to do so? What kind of asset allocation approaches are they taking? We provided a menu of different sorts of investment options that people could select as their favorite or primary or preferred way to generate income in retirement, and it wasn't even close. Uh, Two-thirds of those surveyed, and remember, these were people who were age 50 and older and had investments both inside of retirement accounts as well as outside of retirement accounts, two-thirds preferred dividend payers. There was a three-way tie for some sort of guaranteed income or annuity solution, taxable bonds, and tax-free bonds. Those came in at around 23%, 22%. So this was shocking to us because it's hard to get two-thirds of our country to really agree on anything. But when it comes to generating income in retirement, uh, certainly people seem to really uh, lean towards dividend-paying equities. And just from a behavioral finance perspective, This really speaks to something called bird-in-the-hand theory. And essentially what that means is that retirees tend to feel really good about receiving a dividend every quarter, uh, knowing full well that the value of their stock can go up or down in any given day. There's something to be said uh, about companies who have a history of not only paying dividends over many decades, but actually increasing those dividends over time. So it seems as if that was the clear winner Uh, from our findings. Okay, so having a predictable, steady stream of income sounds to be in favor. I I do want to bring Ainsley into the conversation a bit. And Ainsley, I know we've spoken about this next point recently on a Top of the Morning podcast, though. A common financial planning question is, and I alluded to this a bit earlier, how much does one need to have saved in order to retire comfortably? Now, historically speaking, the 4% rule has served as a helpful guide to answering that very question, though, given the environment that we're in today, Ainsley, how relevant would you say the 4% rule is, and should it be reevaluated? Thank you, Dan. So I think it's it would be helpful first if we just kind of dive into what the 4% rule is, because sometimes there can be a little bit of confusion about it. So the 4% rule is the idea that you can withdraw 4% of your initial portfolio value during the first year of retirement, and then you can grow that dollar amount by the inflation rate each year so that you can make sure that you're maintaining a constant standard of living for 30 years. And the 4% rule says that you can do this with a low probability of running out of money. But it's important to keep in mind that this 4% rule was developed in 1994, I think it was. And so things have changed since then. And, and there are really two reasons that, that I think is important to focus on as to why it should be reevaluated. The first one would be that it was calculated using backward-looking return assumptions. 
So although analyzing historical returns definitely can offer insights towards potentially viable retirement strategies, the market environment for the past 40 years is likely to be incredibly different from what we expect going forward. And so using those backward-looking return return simulations might not be the best approach. And then the second reason would just be that it was based on a retirement period lasting 30 years. So while this 30-year retirement period may be appropriate for some families, if we look at the actuarial data, there's nearly a 50% chance that one partner in a male, female, 60-year-old couple today could live well into their 90s. And so that 30-year retirement horizon might not be the best approach for you and your family or for most families just because there is a likelihood that you could live beyond that 30-year period. And if you don't plan for a longer retirement horizon and you actually get to that longer retirement horizon, then you could end up in a situation where you're not ready for it. And so that's why we we see the 4% rule as being something that's definitely a rule of thumb and can be a helpful starting point, but it should be reevaluated and, and, of course, uh, decided on a case-by-case basis for you in, in your personal situation. Now, Matt, I know you've done some work on this as well, some analysis at Janice Henderson. As Ainsley pointed out, this rule has been in use going on three decades at this point. Times have changed. How should we be thinking about this today from your vantage point, Matt? Yes, we totally agree with Ainsley's assessment. The best part about the 4% rule of thumb is that it's a rule of thumb. And so whether the right number for any of the listeners today is 3.5 or 4.5 or 5, I think the key takeaway is it's not 10. So to put this in terms of dollars, if we were to start with, let's say, hypothetically a million dollars, you can sort of guess that your income what's reasonable so it's sustainable over many decades uh, is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 45, 50, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's not 90 or $100,000, no matter what type of returns you might be able to generate. The reality is, is that those types of withdrawals are just simply not sustainable. So let's just leave the 4% for uh, call it what it is. And it is a, a good rule of thumb, really nothing much more than that. So as you've both pointed out, everyone's circumstance is different. There's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach in this context. So with that in mind, Ainsley, what would you say are some key factors that one should consider when determining how much wealth is needed to retire comfortably? When we've looked at the 4% rule in some of our research, there are really four aspects that we, we took in mind. So there's first asset allocation. We need to look at portfolio risk and return characteristics. Their spending patterns or how your spending is going to change throughout retirement. We obviously need to know the years remaining in retirement or the life expectancy for you and your spouse. And then, then there's also the accept, acceptable rate of failure or how likely it is that you will run out of money. So if you target a higher probability of success, you may need to save and invest more or spend less just to keep your portfolio from depe- depleting prematurely. And so those are the four aspects that we typically look at. But like Matt had said before, I mean, these are, again, still just rules of thumb. And it really just comes down to a case-by-case basis, depending on 
you, your family, and your unique situation. Matt, anything there you would like to build on, or how do you typically recommend when you have these conversations, the considerations that one should have in mind or in place? Yeah, the one wild card is is healthcare expenses. And the reason why it's a wild card is because we don't know if we're going to get sick. If we do get sick, we don't know how severe the illness is going to be. We don't know what is going to be covered by insurance, what isn't going to be covered by insurance. So as a good rule of thumb, another rule of thumb, uh, for uh, a 65-year-old today in, um, in, in good health, maybe not excellent health, but certainly not fair or poor health, uh, their out-of-pocket expenses, again, for a 65-year-old is about $5,000 a year. So these are your co-pays, your deductibles, your premiums. Uh, the things that you're going to have to be, uh, you're going to have to take care of your own, uh, even with Medicare. And so if you and your financial advisor were to say, okay, we think the right number is 45000 a year or 50000 a year or 55000 a year, we think one smart way to incorporate health care expenses is to just incorporate an additional $5,000 into that cash flow projection uh, just to uh, account for those possibilities. And as far as putting this all to work, Ainsley, any strategies, methods one might apply in order to calculate how much one should have set aside for retirement? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the best place to go to is, is making sure that you're, you have a comprehensive financial plan because we want to make sure that we're taking into consideration all aspects of your finances, not just necessarily that investment portfolio. But I think it's also really important to make sure and keep in mind that you really need to understand how much it is that you're going to be spending in retirement. So typically approach to forecasting our retirement spending is taking one constant inflation rate and applying it to our entire budget and just adjusting it each year to make sure you can keep up with that standard of living. While that can be a good starting point, when we look at some of the data of average U.S. retired households, what we find is that their spending is not increasing in line with inflation every single year. In fact, we find that spending for the average family actually tends to rise by less than the rate of inflation in retirement. So what happens is it follows almost a smile trajectory where it's lagging inflation in early retirement and then rising faster than inflation later in retirement. Part of the reason for that rise later in retirement is going on what Matt had said. It's it's long-term care costs. It could be health care costs. And so the bottom line is just that spending might not be increasing at a constant rate over time. And if you enter into the financial plan a spending amount that isn't what you are actually going to spend, then that plan might not be right for you and your particular situation. So I would just recommend, you know, you want to make sure you're not automatically assuming that expenses will always increase by inflation. You want to make sure you're as, as you're as specific as possible when developing those goals into your financial plan. I completely agree with Matt. You want to make sure that you're entering in those those healthcare costs and also long-term care costs into that plan, maybe as a separate goal. And then, like I said, going through these steps, it's just going to help you get a more accurate picture of how much you'll spend in retirement. And this information will then just help you get a more accurate understanding of how much you'll need to have set aside in order to support that specific spending amount. Anything else, Matt, as far as considerations when it comes to approach, what kind of work, or what have you come up with at Janice Henderson Investors that you share with advisors and clients in this context? Well, we're of the opinion, and UBS has a very similar approach, 
that entering retirement or being in retirement, the importance of having a couple of years worth of cash that you can use for the next 24 months of cash flow. Because we all know, based on our own experiences as investors over many years, that the worst possible time to sell stocks is when? Immediately after they go down in value. And so by having this so-called cash cushion, or to put it uh, in, in your terms, liquidity, uh, on hand that will support monthly income needs for the first 24 months or the next 24 months, that allows us through annual rebalancing to not sell stocks after they go down in value, but to rebalance our portfolio to make sure that the risk is appropriate and use those asset classes that have done well to finance or pay for the next 12 to 24 months after the rebalancing occurs. So we're not falling into the trap of what I call reverse dollar cost averaging, which means you have no choice but to sell your stocks and bonds after they go down in value because you don't have any cash set aside. So different people have different philosophies as to how much cash, but we think two years uh, is a pretty good place to start as a uh, as a point of consideration. So there's clearly a lot of moving parts, considerations when it comes to planning for retirement, maintaining income during retirement, and this compounded with fluid market environments, volatility comes into play. So it's important to know that you're not in this alone. It's important to know that you have a financial advisor to work with to help guide you through the process. So Ainsley, can you speak a bit to the benefits of working with a financial professional during retirement, leading up to retirement, and uh, the benefits one realizes from doing so? Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier when you had said that there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, Completely agree with that. I think it's important to keep in mind that when when we're talking about some of these withdrawal safe withdrawal rates or the 4% rule, what that means or what we're saying is this is how much you can withdraw from your investment portfolio each year in order to support your spending needs. So it's an it's meant to be the amount that you withdraw from your portfolio in order to also support any guaranteed sources of income that you have. Because your investment portfolio is just one piece of the retirement puzzle. You may have those other sources of guaranteed income, such as pension income, annuities, Social Security. And depending on the portion of spending that can be covered by these guaranteed income sources, that's going to have a pretty significant impact on how much you need to have saved in your investment portfolio or how much you're able to withdraw from that investment portfolio each year. And so working with a financial advisor and running a comprehensive financial plan that takes all of these assets and these resources into consideration, going through that process, it's just going to help you get a more complete picture of how much you need to have saved to retire. And this complete picture and this understanding is just going to help you be able to enter retirement with the confidence that you need to live comfortably throughout those 30 or 40 your retirement horizon. Anything, Matt, you would like to add in the way of final thoughts and takeaways? Yeah, so much of the value of the financial advisor um, sometimes goes to, well, what did I return last year and what kind of what kind of fees am I paying? And of course, those are critically important things to think about. Um, but we've done research that the value of a financial advisor is really so much more than returns and fees. 
In fact, uh, one thing that I thought I would share today is we have uh, empirically-based peer review research where when you compare relatively similar investors, some who use an advisor versus others who don't, the difference in confidence is, is extraordinary. Um, and having higher levels of confidence is important, not just because it makes you feel good, but it's important because it's those higher levels of confidence that allows you to stay the course and be able to uh, operate your financial plan in accordance with your goals and values in a very difficult period like the uh, what we saw in 2022. So a lot more to the benefits of working with a financial advisor than just simply uh, recent returns. Well, Matt Ainsley, thank you both very much for dropping by UBS Conversations and for sharing with us the guidance that you did on this very important and ongoing fluid topic conversation. And we do encourage our clients of UBS listening in, approaching retirement, in retirement. If you do have any questions, of course, please consult your UBS financial advisor. Though, Ainsley, Matt, thank you again for your time today and for joining us on UBS Conversations. You're very welcome. Timeframes may vary. Strategies are subject to individual client goals, objectives, and suitability. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial results can or will be achieved. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.